The following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Mark chapter 4, we want to read verses 1 to 34 again, and then we will go to the Lord in prayer and spend some time in what I just find is a very convicting and challenging passage of Scripture for us here this morning. So if you will look at verse 1. Mark writes again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up. Since it had no depth of soil, and and when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with him Uh, with the twelve, asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately in his, to his own disciples, he explained everything. Pray. Jesus, this morning, please help us to, to see you. Jesus, 
Help us to see the fact that your rule and reign is expanding here on this earth and that nothing will stop it. And that all of us here individually and and together corporately, we get the privilege of playing a, a, a small part in that progress. And so I pray, Lord, that as we as we work through your word this morning, that the details will be clear, but more importantly, that the heart and the intent of this passage will be very clear to us, that you will speak to us, challenge us, convict us, open our eyes, help us to live for things bigger and larger than, than what we currently live for, and that in all of this, then you use us to keep expanding your kingdom more and more here in Hampton Roads and around the world. We give you this time. Again, Lord, we ask your blessing. We, we need your blessing. We need your op- you to open our hearts, open our minds, open our ears to hear that, that challenge, that command rings so loud here in this passage. Help us to hear this morning, Lord, and to be changed because of it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week I attempted to give you a very basic introduction to the parables of Jesus. And I say it's very basic because it's a really big subject and it's, there's a lot there that we could say, a lot there that I probably should say, but I tried to narrow it down to just a few things that I, I thought would be helpful. And as, the reason I did that is pretty clear because as you can see here in Mark chapter 4, nearly the entirety of this section is taken up with the parables of Jesus that he's either teaching or explaining to the crowds in public or to his disciples here in private. And as you step back and you think about Jesus and parables from a much larger sense across all the Gospels, you realize that, that again, by some estimates, and I gave this number to you last week, about one-third of Jesus' teaching is done via the means of parable. And again, there's some wiggle with that depending on how you're defining a couple of things here and there. But, but that's a lot. However you want to count it, that's a lot of his teaching is done via parable. But I'm afraid that the sad reality is that for many of us, if maybe prior to last Sunday, if you were here and you heard my explanation and it made any sense whatsoever, I fear that the sad reality is for many of us, if a coworker came up to you tomorrow morning or maybe last uh, Friday afternoon or something and said, hey, um, I've been reading the Bible this week and Jesus has given some parables. Can you tell me what a parable is? Many of us would really struggle with that. Just to even try to explain it, not necessarily to give that definition I gave. It was really kind of a long definition. I knew that. But to even just give an explanation of, of what a parable is in the first place and why Jesus is using it. And so last week I tried to give you a brief but hopefully helpful answer to some of those questions about what, what is a parable? Uh, how do you understand it? Why, why is it being used? And I just want to review those real quickly this morning as we move into this first parable we see here in Mark 4. So, so what is a parable? I gave you the following definition. It was this, that a parable is a comparative idea whose meaning does not lie at the surface, that, but, but that requires you to think deeply to understand the larger point being made in order to elicit a response. That's a, a long definition, but just break it into its parts. It's a comparative idea. I, I'm taking that from the, just the bare meaning of what the word parable is. It's a throwing alongside. Several of you used that with me this week in private conversations. So I appreciate that you were listening. It's a, it's a throwing alongside. It's, it's taking a, a story and putting it up or, or something and putting it up next to something else so that you can make a comparison, so that you can understand it a little bit better. And that, that idea can come in many forms. It can take a story form. The parable of the sower that we're going to look at today in Mark 4 is a story form parable, but it doesn't have to be in a story. Sometimes they come as these 
poignant little illustrations of truth. Sometimes they come as proverbs. Sometimes they even come as riddles. There's a few other things you see that don't quite fit neatly in any one category. But they come in all these different forms, but the purpose is to compare, okay? You got that idea? It's to compare something. And, and what it's trying to do is it's trying to, or excuse me, in that comparative idea, I'm about to skip a part, the meaning of the idea is not necessarily at the surface. So think about our, our parable of the sower this morning. Is this a story that is primarily about agriculture? No. Granted, the story is about agriculture. It's about farming. But the meaning of the story, the reason Jesus is telling us this, is not to help us understand farming techniques better. No, the real meaning is something deeper, and that's the third part. It's designed to force us to think deeply about what is being said, to get to the larger point that is being made here in the story. And all of that, in the end, is intended to elicit a response from us. And this is what sets parables apart from just simple illustrations. Because I could just simply illustrate something for you, and maybe you understand it a little better, but it doesn't, it doesn't cause you to want to do or, or think or be different at the end. And, and, and when Jesus shares these parables... I believe, honestly, that he's, he's trying to elicit some kind of response from the hearers. Maybe it's to, to motivate them to, to really see and understand something so differently that, that it changes their entire outlook on life. Maybe it's that they do something different. Maybe sometimes Jesus just wants to offend them, okay? Because he does that. He sometimes says things purposefully to offend people. We need some of that in our world again today, okay? So he's just offend people. So, so this is what a parable is. It's this comparative idea comes in multiple forms. The meaning is not at the surface. It's meant to make you think deeply, to see a larger point, so that it elicits a response from you. Number two, I said, how are they to be interpreted? And I said, the answer to that one's real simple, just plainly, just normally. Don't, don't try to, like, make it this mystical thing that's so difficult to understand. Just read it normally, and you're looking for just a couple of basic points. What's the, what's the point Jesus is making? Once you understand the point he's making, everything else falls in place. Because sometimes Jesus gives a lot of details because the details matter. And sometimes he gives a lot of details just because they add color to the story. And Jesus is a really good storyteller. So, for example, last week, that uh, origins interpretation of the Good Samaritan, remember the two coins that he gives to the innkeeper are the father and the son? What? Like, what? What does that matter? People with the mustard seed parable, like the birds coming and resting in its branches. Who are the birds? What are the birds? They're birds. They're just part of the story. Jesus is a good storyteller, and he's helping you picture something to its fullest. They don't always have meaning, all those little details. You just need to understand the larger point, and 99% of the time, there's only one point to a parable. 99.9% of the time, if not 100%. So you need to see that point, and then you can never, ever, 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 ever divorce the parable from its context. Do you understand this? Because if you pull it out of its context and you try to treat it by itself, you'll be lost. Each of these parables is given in a specific context, and we need to understand that context in order to make sense of each parable. And then question three, which I didn't have time to answer last week, and I'm not going to answer today. I'll answer it next Sunday, is why were they used? It's to reveal truth to some while hiding it from others. That's Jesus' answer to us. And we'll look at that more next Sunday. All three of those questions and answers are just general truths that apply to all parables, not just the ones here in Mark 4, but all parables, Matthew, Mark, Luke, it doesn't matter where you're at. As you're reading those parables, you can use those answers and and help you understand them better. 
But today now we want to begin working into Mark 4, working into these parables. And I, as we do that, I want to make just two more quick, though they'll be pretty fast, just observations about these parables here to help you understand this better as we go into the parable of the sower. So if you will, let's let's start by just thinking about the structure of this section that we're in here. Because I think it's helpful to understand kind of where you're at, kind of build a framework and then flesh it out as you go into it. So structure of this section. I, I want to bring back a word that we used a few weeks ago. You already know it, most of you. That word is intercalation. Remember this idea? The, the idea is this literary or rhetorical device where you begin a story and then you stop and you insert something in the middle and then you finish the story after that. That, that idea we saw there in Mark 3, it's back. All right, here in Mark 4, it, it's, it's back. If you look at, at verses 1 through 9 here in Mark chapter 4, you notice that the setting of this particular section is Jesus out by the sea, right? And we'll talk about that just in a moment. But he's out by the sea. And then notice verse 10, there is a clear transition. And when he was alone, so this is sometime after the public setting, after the, when he's alone, he's in a house or something, his disciples are with him, the people around him are there, and they're asking him about these particular parables. And so he gives them an answer that starts here in verse 10 and goes all the way at least until verse 20. All of 10 to 20 is with the disciples, with this other group privately. Maybe even to verse 25, I'm a little uncertain about verses 21 to 25 right now, where they fit. Are these private comments or public? I'll address that later. But but it goes all that way. But by the time you get to verse 26, for sure, he's public again. He's back by the sea. And you say, how do you know he's back by the sea in verse 26? Well, you have to look at verse 33 and you understand, because in verse 33, he says, with many such parables, he spoke the word to them. Who's them? That's the question. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, so we've got two groups. We've got the disciples and them. And and he's speaking to them with all these types of, of parables we saw just prior to this, which means at some point we transition back. So Mark's got this intercalation going on that we need to, to be aware of to, to help us rightly understand this passage. And I'll try to draw that out a little more in the weeks ahead here. That's the structure. Number two, I want to just draw your attention to the subject of these parable, parables, these public parables at least, because all of them are about one thing. And that one thing is the kingdom of God. This is going to be my own little personal intercalation. Notice in verse 10, when, when he's alone with them, and those around him, the twelve come and ask him about the parables, and he says to them, "To you it has been given. Uh, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. In other words, hey disciples, you guys are are privy to this mystery of the kingdom that those outside can only hear in parable form, which tells me something about the parable of the sower. It's really about the kingdom of God." If you look at verse 26, he says there at the beginning of that one, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. Verse 30, he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? It's like a grain of mustard seed, da-da-da-da-da. You get the the idea? The subject of these public parables is one thing, one thing only. It's about the kingdom of God, and I won't explain why that's significant until the end. That's my intercalation. 
So, so as we're working through these parables, keep in mind that, that they are generally, if not completely, about the kingdom, about the rule and reign of God on earth. And, and we'll see how that fleshes itself out, beginning here with this very first parable, very well-known one, the parable of the sower. Notice the setting. Setting I mentioned briefly last week. I'll remind you simply today. Jesus is here by the sea. And he's teaching the crowds. And at some point, as always in Mark, crowds are never positive for Jesus. They're either negative or at best neutral. And at some point, they become so burdensome to him that he has to step off land, get in a boat, sit down, and he teaches them there by the seashore. And he begins this teaching with a command that I must draw your attention to for just a moment. It's this command in verse 3 to listen. Listen! Hear! Pay attention! To what I'm about to say, the the way it's worded and the way Jesus seems to say it here, at least the way Mark records it, gives you the idea that Jesus is coming across like one of the prophets of old. Hear Nineveh, hear Jerusalem, hear the word of God to you. Jesus sits there in the boat and he commands his listeners to hear. And throughout this section, he keeps calling them back to this command to hear, to, to be attentive, to open their ears, to hear the meaning of these words. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. You see that several times in this passage. Here, I want to tell you a story. Behold, a sower went out to sow. He, he, he goes to a farming story, something they would have known very well. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. And I'll make a couple comments as we walk through the parable. But in in Israel in the first century, it would have been very common to have paths running all through your fields. Not like we think of today, because back then they didn't have roads. And if you want to go from here to Jerusalem, and your field's in the way, guess what? I'm walking through it, because I've got nowhere else to go. So it was very common to have paths running all through the fields, and he draws attention to that. Sower, he sows some seed along the path, birds come and devour it. Other seed falls on rocky ground where it did not have much soil. He's referring to a situation where you'd have a layer of rock underneath with maybe just a little bit of soil on top covering it. Immediately that seed springs up and since it had no depth and when the sun rose it was scorched and since it had no root it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns and the thorns grew up and choked and it yielded no grain. So you've got a situation here where the plant grows, it's alive, but there's, there's nothing there. And I would just remind you, if you've ever gardened, because this has happened to us, if I plant a tomato plant and I, all I get is a tomato plant and no tomatoes, that's not really helpful, right? There's no benefit to me. So, so this is a problem, and that's what he's referring to here. He, you've planted the seed, but it's yielded no grain. And finally, he says, other seeds fell into good soil, produced grain growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. And, and, and when he's alone later, those around him with the 12 asked him about these parables. And he says to them, do you not understand this parable? Don't you, don't you get this specific one? It's interesting how he's so emphatic about this. Don't you get this parable? Because if you don't understand this one, how will you understand all, all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path. And now he begins to explain each of the types of soil, things you probably understand pretty well. That's why I'm not spending a ton of time on them. These are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear Satan immediately comes and he takes away the word is sown in them. In other words, there's no response. No no response at all in these particular people. The, The word is given to them and nothing happens because Satan has come and he's stolen the word, as Jesus says. 
And we've all inter- interacted with these kinds of people, have we not? Where we share the gospel with them and we're hoping and praying that anything will happen, just anything at all, and it's like we said nothing at all to them. That's one group. So these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy and Yet they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And just think again about this. They receive it with joy. Have you not watched people yourself over the years, if you've been a believer for any length of time, who have heard the gospel and have had some great emotional experience where they fell on their knees and cried out to God, oh, I need you, I need the gospel. And a month later, six months later, a year later, show no evidence that anything has changed in their lives. Jesus himself will say this later on. He'll talk about this later on when when he refers to people who come to him and they say, Lord, Lord, is it end time? Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things? He said, depart from me. I never knew you. What a scary thought. Folks, listen to that. Listen. What a scary terrifying thought to think that people can have such emotional responses to the gospel and it it leaves us scratching our heads wondering what happened and yet there's absolutely no change which if I could just just speak to you as a pastor for a moment and uh, obviously devoid of what we're talking about here this is why we don't go after emotions this is why the goal of gospel proclamation is not to make people cry This is why I don't even do altar calls. I got asked that recently. It's a great question. There's a reason for it. It's because we're not looking for this emotional response immediately. I'd rather see a person go through through real thought, real process, real, real wrestling with the gospel and come to a committed decision than go through an emotional display. I'm not saying that the emotional displays can't be real, believe me. But there has been far too much of that in the American church. People who, when they were children, had some big experience and yet shown no signs of gospel, and yet the rest of their lives they point back to that. Oh, I'm a Christian because when I was seven, this happened. And there's nothing there. So we're not looking for that kind of response. We're not looking for people just to immediately receive it with joy but have no root. No, no, we want something more than that. Verse 18, he says, Others are the ones sown among thorns. They're those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things, they enter in and they choke the word and it proves unfruitful. And I know some of you are wondering, are, are these kinds of people saved? That's always the question here in this story. Are these kinds of people saved? Uh, I don't know. Quite frankly, I don't care. Because it's not the point of the author. It's not Mark's point to draw our attention whether these people are believers or not. And I'll clarify in this in a few moments. But, but I don't think there's a way to make a judgment call on this one way or the other because in the end, the end result is the same. If they're not believers, then of course there's no fruit. And if they are believers, there's no fruit. So for the purpose of the sower, does it matter? It doesn't matter at all. All these other things have entered in and have made this the word that was planted unfruitful. But, and please note, it's not because of the other things. It's because of the, the person. Because some people can take the things of the world and use them to be more fruitful and others are choked by it. Some people can take riches and make them more fruitful and others are choked by it. So it's not the, it's not the stuff. It's the person. 
But again, it doesn't really matter what it is here. The end result is the same. It, the, there's no fruit, so there's no benefit to the sower. And then finally, in verse 20, says, But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and, and bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. Finally here, there's a good result. They hear. You see that? They they heard, they listened to Jesus' first command. They, they heard what was being said, and, and they accepted, and they bear fruit. And, and, and I'm thankful, I'm so thankful that, that it's in differing amounts here, right? 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. Some are, some are used greatly, greatly here. And, and I just think back to people I've known in my life, people now, people of the past, people from church history. Who wouldn't want to be an Apostle Paul, right? Greatly used by God, amazing hundredfold kind of guy. Some of us are like fivefold kind of guys. Not used to the same extent in the same ways, but still used. And Jesus is still pleased. He points this out multiple times with, with multiple other parables. Think of the, the parable of the talents, the parable of the coins, right? The, the master who leaves and he gives his three servants some coin. You should get the coin. Here, use it, invest it while I'm gone. And he comes home and he says, hey, what'd you do with your coin? The first guy's like, I took it. I made 10, 10 more coins. And what does Jesus say? Well done. Well done. Good and faithful servant. Hey, you're going to be the ruler over 10 cities now. Great job. Second guy, I took your coin. I made five. Jesus isn't like, what? You made five? The first guy made, no. It, great. Hey, well done. Good job. You're ruler over five cities. Who's the only person he's not pleased with? The unfruitful guy, right? Took the coin, did nothing with it. He says, you should have at least put it in the bank and made interest on it. Something, anything would be better than what you did. Jesus is only displeased with unfruitfulness. I think God is less concerned with the amount of fruit that we bear than he is with whether or not we're just bearing it. And I think you get that sense here, even in this parable. That's the parable explained. That stuff is all really simple. But here's the question that we need to think about. Why is Jesus telling us? You see, what is this story designed to be thrown alongside of? What is this story exactly supposed to be comparing? Is, is I'll give you a couple of options here up front. Is it designed to be thrown alongside of people's response to the gospel so that we understand their response well? Because, I mean, clearly that's a, a major component of this particular parable. Each soil type is representing some kind of response to the word. It's what Jesus himself says. And I believe that I can safely say that every uh, uh, interpretation, sermon, application of this passage that I have ever heard has been along those lines. What I just did in just a few moments really quickly in passing was like the main point of the entire sermon. Every time I've ever heard this preached before. Because the idea, I think, is that, that it's really supposed to be comparing our, our, our people's response to the gospel. But, but I don't think that's the case. If it is the case, then we should be focusing on the soils, right? That's why those people preach like that and read like that and think like that. They focus on the soils because they think it's, it's supposed to be comparing something to, to the people's response to the gospel. But I don't think that's the point at all. Maybe, maybe it's being laid out alongside of our proclamation of the gospel then. Maybe it's not about the soil. Maybe it's about the sower. And, and maybe we're supposed to think about this guy because, quite frankly, this guy doesn't seem very smart. 
Think about this. I mean, if you're a farmer sitting on the seashore and you're hearing Jesus tell this story, what kind of response would you have to a farmer who only has a limited amount of seed and he is so foolish that he's throwing it all over the the paths, he's throwing it all over ground that he knows is rocky, he's throwing it in patches of weeds that he knows aren't cleared. He wastes three-fourths of his effort. What kind of idiot farmer farms like this? I'll tell you the kind, a homeless, starving kind of farmer farms like this. So, So maybe what we should do is we should look at the foolishness of the sower and come away with how we should be better sowers. Maybe the issue is that that we need to be more strategic. We need to have better plans in our sowing so that we don't waste our time and resources the way this guy did. Or, or, I'll flip that around and go the complete opposite direction. Maybe we should see the sower as like a great model for ministry. He's just broadly broadcasting the seed everywhere he goes because he doesn't know what's going to happen. And so we should do the same because we don't know what's going to happen. Just throw it everywhere and see what God does with it. Well, certainly there's some truth in that. We don't know people's response to the gospel, and so we proclaim it to all, because I don't know what kind of soil I'm dealing with from person to person. But I don't think that's the point either. I don't think that Jesus is telling the story to help us think a little bit more about the sower. No, as I said at the beginning, and as I want to come back to now, the purpose of this parable is to teach us about the kingdom of God. It's to teach us about the kingdom of God. And you see that there in verse 10 when when he's alone and those who are around him with the 12 ask him about the parables. He says to them, listen, to you, to you, my insiders, my believers, my friends, my family, to you, it has been given. You've been given the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is is in parables. All of these parables that he's teaching are are designed to teach us about the kingdom of God. And you say, well, what, what exactly does that mean? What, what is the kingdom of God? Well, rather than giving you a definition of the kingdom of God, can I give you a picture? It's not a parable. It's a picture. A picture of the kingdom of God. Think, think back to our study of Genesis 1 through 11. If you weren't here for it, I hope you know Genesis 1 through 11. Just, just think back to the garden, the, the time in the garden prior to the fall. Think about the relationship that existed between God and man there in the garden. What was it? Perfect. The garden is this temple paradise, temple-like paradise where God dwells with man on earth with nothing in between. Think about the perfection that is around them during this time that is part and parcel with God dwelling with them. There is no sin. There's nothing tainting creation, nothing tainting them. There's no guilt. There's no pain. There's no hurt. There's no death. There is complete and total innocence. It is a place where the rule and reign of God is fully realized for both man's good and God's glory. And this exists for I don't know how long, not terribly long. God's perfect kingdom reign on earth for man's good and for his glory. That's when you want to understand the kingdom Think of, think of the garden before the fall. Think of all that existed before the fall, and you will have a good picture of that. But, what, of course, we know what happened there in Genesis, right? Adam and Eve don't want to live under God's rule and reign. They want to be their own rulers, right? So Satan comes and he says, listen, listen, if you will just eat this fruit, then it's going to taste good. Is that what he said? No. He says, no, listen, if you eat this fruit... You're going to find a lot of other fruits you like a lot too. What what is the temptation to Adam and Eve? 
if you eat this fruit, you will be like God. He's not tempting them to eat fruit. He is tempting them to rebel against the sovereign rule and reign of God on earth. He is tempting them to commit, as R.C. Sproul likes to say, cosmic treason. And they are all too willing participants. They want to overthrow God's rule and reign on earth. They want to rebel against him and become their own rulers. And in so doing, they lose everything that they had had prior to that moment. And so no longer now will God allow them in his presence. He kicks them out of the garden, separates himself from them. Sin enters the world and everything is tainted by it. Now there's guilt, now there's pain, now there's hurt, now there's death. And while God instituted things along the way, particularly with Israel, to help man live in this new state, nothing up to this point has come that can make things right again. And it's with that understanding in mind now that I want you to be reminded of some words that Jesus spoke in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. The very first words we see him say here. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel, the good news of God, and saying what? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus comes now for the first time in human history since that garden, and he says, listen, it's back. The kingdom is at hand. Listen to this good news. It is at hand. Once again, God has come to dwell with man on earth in the person of Jesus, but forevermore through his spirit indwelling the hearts of believers. Sin and guilt can be fully and forever dealt with because Jesus will die to pay for all of it. Pain, hurt, it can be healed. No matter what happens to us on this earth, our hope and joy will no longer be here. Death itself can be defeated even. We have nothing left to fear. This is, this is the kingdom of God at hand in the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And if the purpose of this parable is to teach us about the kingdom of God, then guess what? Our focus then isn't on the soils, nor is it on the sower. It's on the Savior. And the, the kingdom that he is bringing to us. I think that Mark under, put this here. Because he wanted to help us understand how the kingdom of God that Jesus is proclaiming is going to grow and spread. I think, I think it's here for a couple of, of intentional reasons. First, I think it's here to show us Jesus' response to the response of everybody else. That's what we just saw in Mark 3, right? In Mark chapter 3, we finally get to see all the responses that occur to Jesus' proclamation of this kingdom. There are some who believe. You see it in his disciples. There are some, though, who reject him. They think he's crazy. They, they, they think he is, is possessed by Satan. There, there are crowds galore who give no response at all. And so Jesus now, I think, is trying to help us understand a little bit about how he himself sees this kingdom and its advancement here on earth. Yes, he may have been rejected. Yes, some aren't responding, but some are. And second, then, he's going to show us that despite all those controversies and and rejections and discouragements, the mission of Jesus in expanding this kingdom on earth is going to be amazingly, abundantly successful. Amazingly. He will build his church 
and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so that means for us that when we are partnering with God in the advancement of this kingdom, we have a guarantee that we will be successful. What other avenue of life do you have that in? You don't have it in your marriage. You don't have it in your children. You don't have it in your your work. You don't have it in your family. You don't have it anywhere else. And yet in this work of the kingdom, guaranteed success that we can be part of something that is going to produce an outcome of unbelievable proportions. John, when he, he, there in Revelation, gets a scene of the throne, what does he see? Myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands of people from every tribe, kindred, tongue, and nation. And so, despite whatever difficulties we may encounter along the way, despite all the setbacks and the discouragements and the seeming failures that seem to to be before us, Nothing, nothing, I tell you, will stop the amazing fruitfulness of this kingdom. And so what should our response be? Because if this, this is being laid alongside the kingdom of God to help us understand its advance better, and it's there to elicit a response, what response would I suggest? I'd point out a couple that it shouldn't be. It's not the response, the right response, to be more careful in our sowing. I actually kind of agree with the, the other wrong one, that it, you should be more profligate in your throwing, in your sowing. You can throw too, whatever you want to do. Sow it broadly because we don't know what God's doing around us. You don't know what small words, small act of kindness, small anything may have an effect. But, but as good as that is, I don't think that's the right necessary response we should have. Nor do I think it's to cause fear in our hearts because we're trying to figure out what kind of soil we are. And I say that to people who I know ask those questions. If you, if you read that parable and you're like, and gripped by fear all of a sudden, because you're like, what am I? You're, you're missing the point. You're missing the point altogether, though, that you're fearing it is a problem. You need to talk to somebody, probably. Now, I think the right responses are these. Number one, to give us encouragement and motivation as we play our small roles in the spread of God's kingdom. I think it's to give us encouragement and motivation because what we want to see is more and more fruitful seed growing around us. We want to see more and more people come to live under the gracious, kind, benevolent rule and reign of God with His Spirit indwelling them. We, we ourselves want to be fruitful in all the various ways and, and to the various degrees that, that God can use us for. I don't even care how much or where. We just want to be fruitful. That, we should be encouraged and motivated to play our roles in the spread of this kingdom. And number two, Number two, it should force us to look to Jesus, to look to Jesus alone, to depend on Jesus, to depend on Jesus alone as he uses us in his master plan to make his benevolent, sovereign, perfect rule and reign known in our neighborhoods and in our workplaces and in our cities and our country throughout the earth, both for man's good and for God's glory. When you read this parable, folks, in the future, I don't want you to come away with the sower, thinking of the sower. I don't want you to come away thinking of the soil. If we walk away from this passage with anything other than great love and and admiration and respect and worship for our Savior, then we have not read it well. And I hope you see that today. Will you bow your heads with me? Jesus, I, all we can do now is, is come to you and ask that you 
do in our hearts with your spirit what we ourselves cannot do. It is so easy for us to become self-focused, even in reading your word, and to come to a passage like this and try to find things about ourselves and how we should live or function differently and not come and see you. And this parable has been very clearly given, I believe, to explain to us the kingdom of God, and you are its chief architect. You are its chief ruler, Jesus. And so if we walk away from this with any other view than you, we have failed. And so today, Lord, as we go out from this place, will you give us this this vision of you, this, this ability to see you, to see this kingdom that you are building? You have brought it to earth. You have made a way for us to have a relationship with God again, to restore what was lost in Eden. You have paid for all the sin. There is no more guilt, no more condemnation. There's no pain or hurt that can happen to us here that will ever change who we are in you. Death itself cannot defeat us now. You have given us life because you have conquered the grave. You have brought the kingdom back. and We are living under its benevolent rule today and look forward to living under it more so in the future. And so, Jesus, as we go out and we talk to the people around us in our workplaces and neighborhoods and wherever we are, help us to see that work as being a small part in your work to spread your kingdom to the ends of the earth, to make your name great, to make God's glory fill this earth once again. It's for for God's glory, but it's also for man's good. All the blessings of Eden restored. Help us to see this. Help us to remember this and to be motivated by it, to be better servants for you through your power, to work with all the energy you give us, to do what we can to proclaim Christ everywhere we go. We thank you for your word this morning. Lord, please convict us and change us through it, we ask in Jesus' name.